You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. You guys doing okay? Yes. Um, I'm thankful for a little bit different uh, sort of format tonight. Um, And the intent is I'm going to put some stuff out there. I'm going to toss some content on the table. Um, Like Jacob told you with the format, about halfway through, we're going to ask you to kind of interact with it in smaller groups. So that means that you guys on what we will affectionately refer to as the fan banks in the conference center, you guys are going to need to circle up and have a little bit of conversation. Um, But there are going to be some points where I ask for a little bit of response. And I know that this is just a little bit bigger than maybe we had anticipated. But still, if I ask for some feedback, if those of you who are quick processor, immediate talkers would be willing to offer, that would be really helpful. Um, So tonight, uh, we're going to start uh, basically laying a foundation for what the whole idea and concept behind lenses is. Um, We want to look at what it means to view all of life through the lens of the gospel. So all of life. That means every relationship that we have in life. If we uh, we're all sons and daughters, if we are, um, if we are, have children, if we are husbands or wives, we are co-workers, we're students, wherever we land in a relational standpoint, we're talking about viewing those relationships through the good news of Jesus Christ. We're talking about viewing um, the culture that we interact with, which is where we're specifically going to land tonight in really kind of broad terms. We're going to talk about vocation. We're going to talk about all sorts of topics, all with the goal of seeing things not through um, our own identity, not through um, even maybe the perspective that we would want to shape the issue or the relationship to look like, but viewing all of life through the good news of Jesus. So when when we talk about that, just to kind of lay a framework, when we talk about viewing life through the lens of the gospel, what we're talking about is the truth that God became man in the form of Jesus. And when he did that, he did that with the, the sole goal and aim of redeeming man from the consequence of our sin. Okay, so creation's perfect. Sin enters into the world. It breaks man's relationship with God. Jesus comes and lives in perfection, what, what it would take for us to live in right relationship with God. He lives in perfection for us. And then he takes on all of our offenses towards God, takes them all upon himself, dies on a cross, raises from the grave, defeats, conquers sin and death, um, and then offers his perfect record, offers all the right things that he has done to us and offers us perfect relationship with God through the work that he's accomplished for us on the cross. So there's this really crazy exchange. He takes our mess-ups, and he gives us his perfection. And so when that happens, it it drastically transforms and changes what all of life looks like. When you've been offended by someone, or you have offended someone, and forgiveness is extended to you, whether you've asked for it or not, but it's offered to you, You feel this level of kind of unworthiness, of grace, of responsibility that comes along with that forgiveness. And as we live in relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us on the cross, there's this relationship that is transformed by that truth that we have in Christ. So we're talking about every aspect of who we are being influenced by the fact that we are bought away from complete separation from God for all of eternity. So for life past this life, we will spend with God. But while we're here on earth, what do our interactions, what should they look like with others? So that's what we're talking about with with lenses. Tonight, we're specifically going to look at the idea of culture. Um, And when we talk about culture, um, uh, getting to do research just on the word itself, it was pretty interesting. In 2014, the word culture um, was Merriam-Webster's word of the year. Who knew that Merriam-Webster had words of the year? But they do. Um, It's based off of the level, uh, the number of web searches that a certain word hits during that year. Um, So that word was searched more than any other word in 2014. And I would say that the reason that that word has um, gained curiosity and um, people looking for understanding when it comes to what culture is, is that there are a lot of things that we put in the cultural bucket when we talk about culture. There are lots of things that we say when we talk about the way that um, we influence culture or culture influences us that we're talking directly about, but we're putting it kind of in this bigger bucket. So I want to say that there are, there are three things that we often talk about when we use the word culture. And you're going to get a lot of stuff that is going to pop up on the screen tonight, um, more than you're going to be able to fit 
uh, on your notes page. So all of my notes will be available on our website at shades.org slash lenses, along with a couple other resources, so don't feel like you have to frantically write down tonight. Um, but the, there are three, three things that we talk about when we use the word culture. The first is the process of individual enrichment. So when we talk about somebody who maybe their knowledge skill or their cultural awareness or self-awareness is really fully developed, we'll say that they're cultured or they've been exposed to, uh, to, to specific sorts of um, arts or um, a business class, those sorts of things. We'd say that they are cultured people. So the personal process, the process of personal enrichment. The second would be a, a group's particular way of life, the way that a group of people live when we talk about culture. And that could be from a socioeconomic class to ethnicity um, to gender differences. All sorts of things could be grouped into a particular group, but a way of life that goes along with them. And then the third would be activity pursued by means of museums, concerts, books, movies, um, things that are a result of culture. So I would argue, and this, this comes from a piece in the New Yorker, these three ideas do, but I would argue argue that when we talk about culture, we generally talk about that second one. We talk about a group's particular way of life, and we take all sorts of things and we drop it in that bucket, and we call it culture, we call it a way of life, but there are specific things that we are talking about. So when we talk about culture, that's often what we're talking about, how a group of people live and operate. Um, There are three main thinkers that are going to shape what our content looks uh, like tonight. And so I want to give you what their definition of culture is. They're fairly similar, but there's some nuances in there. Um, The first uh, comes from the guy who wrote this book. His name is uh, H. Richard Niebuhr. Um, He is a theologian from um, uh, the 1950s. Um, This book is kind of a a seminal work on Christ and culture. When people try and um, synthesize or do a synopsis of, of the Christian's engagement with culture or the church's engagement with culture. This is the book that is most often pointed back to. Um, he, uh, he has a brother named Reinhold Niebuhr. They were both theologians kind of around the same time. Um, H. Richard was a little bit more conservative of the two. And what he did is he took culture and he dropped it into fi- uh, the churches or the Christians' engagement with culture. He dropped it into five different categories. And we're going to do a brief overview of those tonight. But his definition um, that comes from this book is the total process of human activity. And then he says it compri- comprises several different things, language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, what we gain in history, technical processes, the way that we organize and do things, and values. Okay, so this is, this is H. Richard Niebuhr. Um, the second is from a guy that is uh, still alive. His name is D.A. Carson. You may have heard of him before. He's a very pro- prolific Christian writer. He is a professor um, at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, uh, near Chicago. And he wrote a response recently to Christ and culture from, uh, from H. Richard Niebuhr. And he gives sort of a different, uh, different, more concise look. He says that culture itself is the shared understandings that are manifest in act and artifact. So the things that we do and the things that we produce, he would say we can narrow culture down to just those two things, act and artifact. And then the third um, comes from a guy named Andy Crouch. Um, he, uh, he is the chair of Christianity Today. He works with the International Justice Missions um, uh, Institute. He does lots of really, really great work um, and has a really great voice concerning uh, the church's engagement with culture. And his is totally different. He says that culture is what we make of the world. Culture is, first of all, the name of our relentless and restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and to make it something else. Okay? His argument in his book that that definition uh, came from is that we are all about, um, we are all uh, contributors or makers of culture. And we'll talk about that more in our time together tonight. So there are three kind of basic working definitions. When we talk about culture, um, we synthesize from different groups. Um, at different kind of arenas of life to develop this idea of what we call culture. So I want to ask you the question of, of what would you say, what, what kind of things would you put in the bucket that you call culture? So what are things that you think about or things that you try are trying to communicate when you use the word culture? Even think about how that word is used in your vocabulary. When you talk about culture, what are you talking about or what could you be talking about? Say it again. Yeah, differentiating one culture from another. That's great, David. Values, values, so like normative values, that's really good. What, say it again. Traditions, good. Okay, what else? Say it again, Preston. 
The feel of a place. Okay, that's good. That's high, high context communication there. What, what else? A way of thinking. Okay. Ethics. Okay, that's, that's great. So I'll come back to that one in a minute. Uh, what else? When you talk about culture, social structure, huh? Entertainment. Okay. So, so keep going with it. We've gotten some sort of like ethnics, geographical makeup uh, in terms of, of structure, of value. Now we're talking about entertainment, kind of the result of, of culture, maybe the artifacts that we get from culture. Anything else? When you talk about culture, what are, what are you talking about? Language, clothing, food, food, amen. We are a Baptist. What else? Anything else? Okay, I want to say that when we talk about culture, we kind of pull from four different categories. One did not get mentioned from you guys tonight, but I think you'll track along with me on it. And the first one is geographic and ethnic influences. So that's the idea of differences in, um, in food and dress and region and even kind of Preston's idea of the feel of an, of an area. The second is belief systems, which that would drop with, um, with values and with ethics. And whenever you mentioned ethics, uh, the Niebuhr brothers, they were both ethicists and they kind of developed this line of thought. So this was the vein that they were thinking from. But belief systems. The second is arts and media. So what you were talking about, Sean, the second. um, And then the fourth is uh, politics and policy. Okay, so all of these things, when we talk about culture, we draw from from generally those those four types of things. So we draw from them, we put them in this bucket, but at the same time, we all contribute to culture ourselves. We are all people because we are a part of all the things that we just mentioned and we talk about all the things that we just mentioned, and we practice all the things that we just mentioned, and we subject ourselves to all the things that we just mentioned, we are all actually not just subject to culture, but we are part of making, our cult- making culture ourselves. And um, there's this guy that, uh, that he's a writer. Um, he wrote, writes for a, a blog called Christ and Pop Culture. He says that culture forms us and that we form it. So it's like this reciprocal, reciprocal relationship. We're part of creating it, but at the same time, it shapes how we think and how we work. So the next question, if we kind of look at what we're talking about when we talk about culture, which is what we're trying to talk about there, the next question is, is culture good or bad? Is culture itself, is it good or bad? We come to it with biases, even the way that we talked about food and dress and the air of a place, all those sorts of things, values, ethics. We come with a personal bias toward culture, but is culture by itself, is it, is it a good or bad thing inerrantly? Um, and I would say that culture itself um, is, is benign, okay? God initially created it as good, he, just like he created everything else, he created the world, he created culture, and he created it as good. But culture itself has been influenced by sin. It's been influenced by the fall. So what God has intended for good still exists in good in some ways, but at the same time, because it's been affected by sin, been affected by the fall, it also exists in bad. So culture kind of starts in a neutral position and then lays, lays itself out. Um, it's like uh, the way that we reference the world. God created it, sin has messed it up, um, but, but it, is, it is neither one inherently good or bad. Um, when we talk about culture, I think, and especially in, in, a, in a North American or Western context, we often uh, vilify it and kind of put it in negative terms. So if we take the geographic piece of it off and we talk about the way that culture influences us and we talk about media, politics, values that are different than ours, we often talk about the way that culture contributes to us negatively. Are you guys following with me on this? And so we vilify it. We turn it into a bad thing. We will often talk about culture um, and we will use a different phrase, but we will talk about the world. And really what we're talking about is culture, negative aspects of culture. So we'll vilify it. When culture itself isn't good or bad, God created it and he commanded it. Okay, uh, Genesis 1.28 uh, can be called uh, the, uh, the, the cultural mandate where God said, um, go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. It's basically create and then um, uh, have rule, dominion over created things. God gave that to man at, at creation. So when we look at the idea of culture and ask the question, what are we to do with it? How are we to respond to it? We, we say that we want to engage culture. Um, one of my former professors, he, he has this quote. He says, you want to engage culture. You want to approach culture. Um, it's too late because culture has already engaged you. 
It is the air that you breathe. You're so suffused with it that you talk about engagement. The way that you talk about, to talk about engagement is a misnomer. You've missed it if you talk about engaging culture. You are engaging it. You are creating it. The question is, what are we doing and how are we influencing it? Okay? So this is, this is the next piece that we're going to ask. We've said, what is culture? Is it good or bad? It is benign. It can go either direction. It can be good. It can be negative. So what do we do with it? And this is where we want to hear from our good buddy Niebuhr uh, for a little bit. Um, and this is, this is the question that we're asking in some form or another all throughout Lenses. So for these next two weeks, we're talking specifically about culture. Next week, Drew Griffin, who's one of our uh, Global Impact Celebration missionaries uh, in Manhattan, he's going to be here and talk about cultural engagement from his perspective. But when we talk about, um, when we talk about uh, the Christian and taxation or the Christian and humor or even the Christian and the church as it is in history or as it is today, we're talking about what do we do with this? What do we do with culture? So there are five things that Niebuhr says. And the reason that I want to go through these is because I think that we can identify with all five of these things. We can see them either in our own life or in the world around us in one way. So it's good to help us kind of categorize. I want to say on the front end that each one of these have some sort of biblical ground, but they are not a complete answer by themselves. Okay, so just kind of work through these five with me real briefly. The first is Christ against culture. The first option that he puts on the table is Christ against culture. And the illustrations I want to help communicate these with are the idea of silos and testaments. Okay? First, uh, silos. Um, I often talk about, uh, whenever Holly and I kind of are kind of debriefing, talking through life, at the end of the day, kids are in bed, and whatever has happened in world events throughout the day, it makes me think about our 10-year-old, our 9-year-old, our 7-year-old, our 18-month-old, and the world that they're going to grow up in. And I'm just like, let's just move to Kansas. Let's buy a silo. Let's grow corn. I don't know what we'll do with it, but we're going to grow a bunch of corn. You can make clothes, and we're just going to kind of retreat. (laughs) We're going to pull out from the world and just totally disengage because I can't handle the culture. I'm going to be against it, and I'm going to push back from it, and I'm going to retreat from it. This is the idea of Christ against culture. I don't want to engage you. I'm going to push away from it, so I'm going to hide. You follow me on that? The other idea when we talk about Christ being against culture, um, do you guys know what testaments are? Anybody have them in your purse or wallet? I just want to see who I'm offending here. Okay. Um, When we talk about Christ against culture, it can take the form of retreat, but it can also take the form of hijacking culture if that makes sense. So we take what we see in, in popular culture or in the world around us, we take it and we hijack it and we slap something Christian on it and then slide it into the Christian subculture, culture within the culture, and we own it as if it was our own and we created it in the first place. So we're so much against it that we want to tr- twist it in our attempt to redeem it and pull it into ours and act like we own it. So we're against culture. We're going to act like it's not theirs and we're going to claim that whatever it was was ours. Testaments is just kind of my, my, my example for that one. The next is Christ of culture. Christ of culture. My example for this one is, uh, is your best life now. In this, in this um, approach, Christ of culture would say that Jesus is the person that points us toward moral perfection. That um, this is the way that the Gnostics thought in the early church. That, that, that getting, um, uh, growing in relationship or growing in... Um, in a sanctification, in, in, in pursuit of relationship with Christ was all about head knowledge. And so if Jesus is showing me the way and he's leading me towards moral perfection, I can have heaven on earth because of Christ. All I got to do is just follow his example. Your best life now is this, I, it's the title of that Joel Osteen book. You guys follow what I'm saying here, that, that God intends all of his best for you, for you to actually achieve it and have it here on earth when we really are not going to have God's perfect best for us until we spend eternity with him in heaven after this life. So we have Christ against culture, Christ of culture. The next is Christ above culture, okay? Um, The illustration I want to hold on to here is the idea of a coin, okay? A coin is one object with two very distinct sides. Um, If you have a penny, who's on the front of a penny? (laughs) Try again. If you have a penny, who's on a penny? Lincoln, okay? You flip it over, what's on the other side? Lincoln Memorial. Okay, so they're two very different things, a part of the same object, but they're very separated. They're, they're two totally different ideas, concepts. One's a person, one's a memorial of a person. One is, uh, was flesh and bones and embodied America in so many ways, and the other is a building. So there's very, very different things happening on both sides of these coins. And the idea of Christ above culture says that there is culture 
and there is the church, and they're going to just exist and kind of ignore each other. They're not against one another. They're just not playing together at all. So Christ is above, the Christian is above culture. Two sides, one coin. The third is the Christ and culture paradox. Anybody, can anybody give me a definition of a paradox? Great. Paradox? Anybody? Huh? Two doctors? (laughs) A paradox. You get what he's saying there? That was good comic relief, buddy. Thanks. Um, a paradox is a, is, a seeming, is a seeming contradiction, okay? So the idea that we look in this, in this uh, fourth concept that Niebuhr offers is Christ and culture are in paradox. They're seeming contradictions. And this is two magnets. It's two magnets with the same pull that are directly opposite from one another with a metal marble in the middle, okay? And in this situation, it seems like they're so opposed and the pull from both sides is so strong. The tension is very evident, but the piece, the metal marble in the middle stays completely still. It's paralyzing. I don't know how to engage one or the other, so I just stay put straight in the middle. I don't know how Christ engages culture. I don't know as the Christian how I'm to engage culture. And they both seem so strong that I'm just stuck at the middle point. It's this point of paralysis. The last one, the, the fifth one, is Christ is the transformer of culture. Um, any time that I've thought through this today, I think about actual transformers, and I think it's because I have three boys. Optimus Prime, you know what I'm talking about? Um, but when we talk about Christ as the transformer of culture, this is the concept of, of exiles. And the biblical picture that I want to pull for this, this one concept um, is the idea of, of Daniel. So Daniel is a, is, a, is, a, is a figure of Christ in the Old Testament. And we see that when he is pulled into exile, when he is pulled into Babylon, he was very much a person that stayed true and, and vibrant in his relationship with God, even when the cultural norm, norms pointed him in a different direction and actually told him that he couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't pray. He couldn't um, eat the things that were, that were a part of being part of the family of God. He couldn't do any of those things. But as a part of staying true in his relationship with God, praying for the culture that he was in, he found favor with the king and therefore influenced the king towards the goodness of God. So we are as exiles as, we are, as, as Christ is transforming culture. Okay? The way that Niebuhr drops these five things out, he doesn't really advocate for any of them. All of them, in one way or another, has holes, but he kind of just tosses them on the table. But the way that you read the book, when you land at the end, you're like, obviously, whenever we talk about being engaged in culture, we want to be Christians that are part of transforming culture. It's kind of like the answer is obviously on the table. Um, so when you look at these five things, I want to pull, because um, the holes are easier, I want to pull the bottom one, the fifth one, off the table. And I just want you to kind of self-assess for a minute, and this may be something that you talk about in your group when we do a little bit of group work here in a second. But when you, um, when you look at those other four that all have seeming uh, very clear holes that are not clear um, engagement communicating the, the transforming work of Jesus to a culture, is there a place that you fall in? Do you want to retreat? Are you like me? Do you, and this is a hole for me. You look at culture and you're like, ah, let's move to Kansas. Let's build the corn. Holly, you better figure out how to sew jumpers. You know what I'm saying? Um, are you number, I love homeschool. I love homeschoolers. Um, I was not trying to knock on you. Um, silos. Second one, uh, your best life now. Do you think that by engaging in culture that you're going to get to experience heaven on earth? Um, Christ above culture. You like know one life is over here, you know another life is over there, and you just kind of like let them live in different spots. Or the last one, do you live kind of in paralysis? Do you live in a place where you're just so kind of like pulled by both sides that you don't know which direction to go in? So Niebuhr dropped these five things um, in this book in the mid-50s, and they're pretty true. I mean, they're they're kind of basic in nature, but they're pretty true and we're able to connect with them. Um, The thing that Carson says in his book, and links to these books will be on our site as well, but the thing that Carson says in his book um, is that, that culture has changed the, there are aspects of culture that have changed in the past 50 years that make this um, the complexities of being a Christian who engages in culture more difficult. It's more dynamic. It's not as cut and dry. So I just want to briefly kind of gloss over five of them. The first one is that there's a strong fight for the market voice on the relationship between Christ and culture. So he's saying that everybody wants to be right. And in this in this place, and you guys can identify this in your own life, the culture that we live in says that every person has a voice. 
Everybody has a voice that needs to be heard. And so when, it's, when we're talking about the church engaging culture and we approach it from varying different perspective and perspectives and views, everybody wants to be right. The next is the influence of modern communication, technology, and immigration. The way that our cities are growing and changing because of technology, because of communication, because of various ethnic and geographical cultural influences that are coming into our cities, change is happening at a pace that we have never seen in human existence ever. It's so rapid. And that's something that we weren't taking into account whenever Niebuhr was writing his book in the 50s, but something that we very clearly have to pay attention to now. The third is broader expectation to tolerance among differing cultural expectations. This is playing to point number one. Everybody has a voice, but everybody's voice is authoritative. This is a culture we live in, tolerance. Everybody's voice is authoritative, and it's valid. So not only do you have to hear it and validate it, you also at the same time have to hold it as authority in your own life. The, comp- um, the fourth is a complicated relationship between the church and the state. There's very much an us versus them mentality when it comes to church and state interaction. And then the last is a decline of confessional Christianity. Think about the cultural, um, uh, the, the Christian climate and cultural specifically for our context in America in the 1950s compared to what culture the, the uh, Christianity in culture looks like in 2016. Really big difference. The marginal believers, there's just less and less of them. There are people that will say that they are believers, but there will be no fruit in their life. And then there are people that are really seeking to try and follow Jesus in their life against difficult circumstances. But that middle ground is shrinking less and less and less and less. So we've looked at a historical response. How are we doing on time, buddy? Okay. We look at a historical response to culture and some of the just kind of modern complexities that come along with it. Um, But the question that I want to ask tonight, and this is where we're going to drive home toward the end of my time with you, is how did, take, take what Niebuhr said and how the church has historically responded to culture, take the changes in mind that we see around us, those things that I named, you guys see them on social media, you see them on the way to work, you hear them in media a lot, that shapes our view of culture. Take all those things and then just kind of like, just, just let them sit there for a second. And the question that I want to ask is how was Jesus connected to culture? When we look at the Bible, and I just want to point out a few things, how did Jesus approach culture? How did he approach um, language? How did he approach things that influence us uh, geographically or politically or in the arts or in just everyday rhythms of life? How did Jesus approach those things? So I want to just kind of, I want to suggest five things to you tonight, and then I want to ask for a little bit of personal response before you move into your group time. The first is that Christ created culture, okay? Christ created culture. Colossians 1.15 is probably one of, my, one of my top 10 passages in scriptures for sure. Um, but it says that in Jesus, all things were created by him and for him, and in him, all things hold together. Okay? So culture was created by, by Christ, and it's held together by him. And I know at times when we look around us and we see some of the things that are, that are negative, that are a, a bad influence from culture, we look at it and we think, man, this whole ship, it's just out of control. <laughs> There's like no way to write this guy. And we jump on the America's going to hell in a handbasket mentality and we kind of lose hope. When what this passage tells us is that God created culture. And that God can and does and will work through culture. And as we look through our time uh, tonight, that we have hope in the midst of it. Think just for a second, and Drew is going to drill through this a little bit more next week, just about how we know that God is the creator of, of culture, that Christ has created culture. One is creation itself. To think about God's chosen people, Israel, think about the things that he instituted that are cultural elements for them. So he instituted feasts, customs, rituals, um, languages, things that they spoke, the way that they acted and interacted with one another, their expectations, memorials that they built. All those things are a part of creating culture. And God ordained, um, commissioned, commanded his people, Israel, to do those things. So we see those in the Old Testament, and we'll hit that a little bit more next week. So all things, all things were created by and for and are held together by 
Jesus, all things. There's this quote from Abraham Kuyper, who's an, um, an, old, uh, an old preacher. That I, just, I just love this. There's not a single square inch in the world domain of our human existence over which Christ, um, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that includes culture. It is his. It is broken because of sin, but he is about redeeming it. Number two, first Christ created culture. Number two, Christ entered culture. And we see this at the incarnation. We see that in the midst of um, a really messed up political time in the history of the world, um, we see as creation seems to be deteriorating because of the result of fall and hopelessness is kind of set on. There's been no word for the people of Israel. There's been no word from God for 400 years. And that in the midst of this kind of desperation, what happens? God puts on flesh in the form of a baby, and he enters into that world, into that historical context, that point in time. He was in the middle of it. Number three, we see that Christ engaged culture. Um, We could give many examples when we talk about this point, but there are two that I just want to highlight for our purposes tonight. The first one is uh, the wedding at Cana that's in um, John chapter 2. Um, this is, uh, for all accounts, Jesus is kind of um, his coming on the scene in terms of ministry, and he goes to this wedding, um, which is a celebration. It's a cultural celebration. It's the joining of a husband and a wife, and it was, it was a really significant party over a decent period of time during Jesus' uh, life. And he shows up, and he is very much engaged and present. And his first miracle is actually making sure that this cultural celebration, that this party keeps going. Now, I love the way that feasts are represented throughout Scripture. We could spend a good amount of time just kind of talking through that. But that Jesus at a wedding is where his ministry begins. And at the end of time, when culture has been completely redeemed and renewed and recreated, we will sit down with him at a wedding feast. Again, a piece of culture. Jesus engaged the culture that he was in. The second um, that I want to point out is the woman, uh, the woman at the well. Jesus is traveling. He goes into a place where the cultural norm for a man to engage a woman, especially of different ethnic descent, would not happen in the middle of the day. And he talks to her. He engages her. He talks to her about her family. He talks to her about um, her, her lack of family. And he points to her to the deep need that she has to be satisfied by the only one that can satisfy her. And, and that is himself sitting in front of her, the living water. He deeply engaged, even when it was against cultural norms, he engaged the culture that he was a part of. Number four, Christ removes the fear of culture for us. Okay, so when we talk about vilifying culture, saying that it's bad, we see the negative effects of it and it makes us want to pull back. We see in the scripture, and specifically in our verse for tonight in John 16, 33, that Christ removes the fear of culture. He's talking to his disciples and he's telling them um, about what is to come. And he says that he wants to give them peace. And that's the whole reason that he's telling them about what's about to happen. And then he says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. This culture, it's going to get hard. It's going to be rough. And he's talking to men that are going to die because of their faith in Jesus and the culture that they live in. That's who he's talking to. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Because that world that's going to give you trouble, that culture that is difficult, I have overcome it. He gives us peace. He removes our fear that we have in culture. Then number five is that Christ sends us into culture. And our passage for that is John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. In this passage, um, Jesus is talking, he's, he's talking to his disciples, and he's praying, uh, he's praying to his Father, praying for them. And um, he actually prays that they would not be taken out of the world, they would not be taken out of culture, but that they would stay in it and be protected, that the evil one would not, would not, um, would not mess with them, would not harm them. That they have been sent, just like Jesus was sent, into the world to influence culture to be be people that bring hope to a place that's hopeless. I heard somebody use the phrase this week, to to bring light bulbs to a place that is pitch black. That that's what we would be as people that are following Christ in the midst of culture. That we have been sent into that. 
Okay? So as we look at these five things that Jesus has done in culture, he created it, he entered it, he engaged it, he removes fear of it, and then he sends us out into it. I want to ask us five kind of questions in response, and then we'll transition into group discussion. The first thing that I want to say just in parallel here is that we are part of creating culture as well. So Jesus authored it, God created it, overall big picture. But the fact that we are engaged in people's lives, that we work, we contribute to society, we um, are part of education, we're in relationships, we're part of civic culture, we're part of creating the arts, all these sorts of things, we are part of creating culture. And that is part of the image of God inside of us. The second is we're living in the culture that's around us. So just like Jesus entered into culture, we're very much a part of the culture that we live in. The third is that we have the opportunity to intentionally engage culture every day, just as we saw Jesus engage culture himself. So the same thing that we see in Jesus is the opportunity that's in front of us. Number four, and this just may be um, truth spoken to uh, the place that I am in life and uh, to a father's heart, is that we don't have anything to fear in culture. Our hope is not that America's cultural norms will change to be that of Judeo-Christianity. Our hope is in Jesus, the one who will finally make all things right. And as our hope is in him, our responsibility is to be people that are living in our culture, engaged in our culture, living out the truth and love and hope of Jesus in every interaction that we have in life. And then number five is that we have been sent out into culture to influence it for Christ. That's who we are. That's, that's God's commission to us through Jesus if we're following him. That we don't just get to kind of pull back and retreat. We don't just get to be paralyzed in the middle. We don't just to get to look at culture and think, man, this is going to be the best thing for me. But we've been sent out on a mission to influence culture because what are we doing when we're influencing culture? We're influencing people, the ones who create culture, people, the ones who Jesus came and died for, so as Jesus is about redeeming culture, the only way it will be redeemed is, is he as, as he is redeeming people. So we want to engage in culture wholeheartedly, every aspect of who we are. Not retreat, not feel like we have to hide, not feel like we're paralyzed in the middle. And this isn't just agenda-oriented. This isn't picking a topic. This isn't asking what platform do I need to jump on. This is you faithfully spending time with Jesus in the scriptures, in prayer, in community with other believers, in living life out in faith. That is engaging culture. Why don't you lead us? All right, at this time, we're going to have about 10, 15 minutes of Q&A. Chad's offered a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of questions that we have. Um, I'm going to try to run around and uh, give the microphone. If you could be inspired when the person next to you is inspired, that would help a lot. <laughs> also, uh, if a lot of people raise their hand. Whoever smiles the biggest is who I'm going to go to. So uh, any questions for Chad at first? No, that's okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. Logan. Logan. First of all, it's so awesome to see how many people are here. And um, thank yeah, you, Chad. Yeah, that's great. Give yourself a hand, guys. The entire crew for making that's tonight so happen. This that's is so, really weak. so, so okay. awesome. Um, but Chad, how does one, you know, acknowledge that we are a part of culture, acknowledge Christ's embrace of culture without, um, without compromise? Um, because I feel like, you know, if you, if you look at today's society, a lot of times whenever um, we are asked to be tolerant, we are asked to embrace culture, um, a lot of times that is asking us to compromise. So what's the difference there between what Christ is calling us to do with culture and um, compromising our stance, what we believe um, in our pursuit of like loving and pursuing others? That's a really great question, um, one that people have been asking for a long, long time. <laughs> um, and I, I just want to give kind of a brief flip on that real quick. I think oftentimes when we think about um, how do we engage culture without compromising, we think more about trying to convert the person outside of us to follow biblical norms and to follow Jesus instead of being responsible for our own actions and what's in front of us. And as we are people that enter into a relationship with Jesus, our personal responsibility is to follow Christ in the everydayness of life. 
And so we spend time in scripture, knowing God's character, knowing his will for our lives. We spend time with other believers. We spend time in prayer and we take responsibility for ourselves. Um, And I think at times we get so offended of offending people that we have a hard time doing that when um, our fear should never be of man. Our fear should be of God in the relationship that we have with him. Um, And so that's why when I say that I'm not aiming for an agenda or a platform, what I am saying is that I'm aiming for people that that, that say, profess relationship and dependence on Jesus, that we actually would be people like that. That will be the thing that will influence culture. Um, And that will be the thing that at the end of the day, um, if I have lovingly offended my, my, my friend that I disagree with, but have done it in a loving way, but done it in obedience to Christ. I've been faithful. I've been faithful in that relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, great. He's got the mic right here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chad, I'm trying to wrestle with something myself, and you brought up D.A. Carson. And in the church now, we have this thing called the Emerging Church, you know, with Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, and all of those. Mm-hmm. And in listening to Rob Bell, he said, well, you know, the virgin birth and the sinless life, that's a given. Right. We've got to really be relevant to culture. And I think it's, it, it, like you said, there's a decline of orthodoxy. Right. You know, where do you, where do you see that coming together? What is a Christian's responsibility to always stay to the basics but try to be relevant at the same time. Um, so one of the one of the texts that I was reading just as I was preparing for this talked about how um, uh, culture is so important to talk about in terms of Christianity because Christianity can translate to any culture, um, but it's contextual at the same time. And so we think about that in terms of different ethnicity, but it also does that in terms of generations. Um, and generationally, we live in, in a space where truth is, um, is not as concrete as it has been in the past. Everything is open to kind of like redefinition of truth. And what we have to do as people that are following Christ is have to respond to the truth that he has given us in Scripture, his revelation to us. And so we look to Scripture, we look to what it says to us in terms of how to live, and what it says authoritatively, even about some of the doctrinal things that you were talking about, about the virgin birth or, or about hell. And there's all sorts of different people that have been a part of the church and kind of like sprung off and are saying different things now because it is more palatable to hear. It's more pleasing to say and to be received by. Um, and, 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 and what we have to be responsible for is for ourselves and how we respond to God's revelation to us in Scripture. And so I think that um, whenever, whenever Jesus uh, tells us the two things that he wants us to do, he tells us, he sums it all up, he says, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we are loving God with everything we are and we are responding to our neighbor in love, um, then we are acting responsibly with, with the culture and the context that, that we live in. And that, that may not be popular and people may disagree with it. And that has been the story of the church for the past two centuries. Um, but it's, it's, it's unique to us in the context that we're in, if that makes sense. Chad, I have a question. What, Jacob? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask questions, but I have the microphone, so I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> and with Danny and I here, I can ask it. What, uh, what do you think, I'm teasing about the Danny part, what do you think, when we're looking at lenses and Shades Mountain Baptist Church, the biggest obstacle uh, for us in engaging culture or the biggest reason that our church would hesitate with engaging? I could get lots of those. I don't know that I could give a biggest, but I'll give a couple off the top of my head. Um, I think one of the hardest things that we have with engaging culture is we, we one, we live in a historically uh, Christian context. And so people may know how to live or may know what to say, but may not have their lives rooted um, in Jesus. And so we are trying to talk to people that think that they know what following Christ is, but they actually do not have a relationship with him. So there's a loss in communication that happens there. And so our culture changes the way that we have to speak with clarity in terms of what following Christ is and what hope in the gospel truly is. Um, the second is we uh, live in a place, and, and I'm not 
um, I'm going to say that we live in a place of affluence, and I know that not all of us have a ton of money, but when you look at the broader scope of the world, we live in a place where we have stuff. Um, and it is easy for our hearts to be kind of raptured by the things we have in front of us and, and try and fill any void or need that we have um, with the things that our culture provides for us physically and tangibly. Um, and then I would say that we live in a culture where we like to hide. Um, we live in a culture where we don't like to admit that we, that we have need. Um, and so nuancing conversations in a way that we can talk about need that we own, um, that we all have personally, that need that we have for a restored relationship with God through Jesus, the way that we can point all physical need roots back to eternal need that we have in Christ. So I would say, I would say those things, kind of cultural Christianity, um, probably material things that we have, and then probably just kind of hiding. Would you guys identify with those things? Would you say those same things? Are those things that you feel like you come in contact with or have difficulty with kind of living your faith out in the culture that we live in? Yes? Okay. Scott. I'm going to apologize first because this is potentially a loaded question, but uh, I want to get your opinion on how you talk with your kids about culture that they're involved with at school and friends and that kind of thing. Um, Holly and I, uh, we actually let them do their own. I, we are not experienced parents. We, <laughs> we, I've been a parent for 10 years, so there are a lot more qualified people that could talk about this. Um, but Holly and, I, um, Holly and I actually let our kids do comparison. So what we do is we teach truth, and when they come with something that they see doesn't match up with what we have been talking to them about, then we address it at that time. It's like, um, I've used this illustration before, it's like um, people that study um, that identify counterfeit money. They don't identify all the counterfeit money in the world. They focus on what true American currency is so they can identify an imposter when they see it. Um, so for us, we try and stay a, he- a step ahead of them in intentional, intentionality and just conversation in general. Um, but we don't try and vilify every possible thing that they could come in contact with. We kind of teach truth, teach truth, teach truth. And as they see something that conflicts, I mean, Abby has done it before. She's come home and she's like, so this is what we say but this is what my friend said. Um, and these two don't match. And then she'll even say, how do we even know it's true? <laughs> you know, like you start down that whole road and just not back away from it. Just keep teaching truth. Not, and, and even stepping outside of ourselves, this is not just our family. Like this is God's, God's truth to us, people in general. And, and we're great, grateful that God has given grace to us in a way that we're able to have it, receive it, and respond to it. Does that answer your question? Okay. Last one, yeah. Um, two things first a little I think slight disagreement yeah um, when you asked is culture good or bad just in my mind I thought well it's good and the reason I thought that is because even even the cultural the, the groups that have cultural norms that are influenced by sin if I can understand that's good that that's really good. Can help me yep. not hate that person. You're right. And love that person. Not because of the sin, but because Christ wants me to understand them. Yeah. So I thought, well that you know, that's good. But I think that that's probably just viewing it from a different kind right. of unit. Yeah, I would agree with you, but I think yeah. you would agree with me from yeah. a different perspective at the same time. That's yeah. good. That's that's helpful to do because even identifying negative culture points out need for Christ is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. That's good, Preston. And, that's good. and it helps me love them. Yeah, I love them. Yep. Yep. Um, and then uh, I think I need a little help understanding D.A. Carson's first point. Mm-hmm. Because if, when you were talking about D.A. Carson's first point, I was thinking, well, if we're having a class that's about teaching the church to understand culture, mm-hmm. aren't you staking your place in the in the fight for defining Christ's position with regard to culture? Yeah, so what he, what Carson was putting on the table is basically just saying that culture has, um, so his book is a response to Niebuhr's book. And basically what he says is that Niebuhr's book, one, um, Niebuhr's book has scripture in it, um, but it's not as biblically grounded. So what D.A. Carson does is his book is authored from the point of a biblical theologian, and he comes back and says, we can ground this in some different ways. And here are some things that culture has changed or differed since, since, uh, Niebuhr, wrote, since Niebuhr wrote his, um, uh, wrote his book. Let me go back. Um, full disclosure, I'm going to look back at point one, just so i am got clarity in what we're talking about here. 
we'll hit this, finish this up, and then you guys will move into group work. The fight for the market voice on the relationship between Christ and culture. This plays more, okay, this is good. This plays more um, into the fact that there, it's like, it's, it's kind of like the question that we had over here about, um, about Rob Bell or about other people that have been leaders within the church, that they're fighting for the marketplace on kind of truth and how, and how the engagement with culture should fit. He's not saying that fighting for the marketplace um, and trying to stake truth and claim is bad. He's saying that everybody's trying to do it now. And so it, it makes the, uh, having the conversation more complex because we have questions like that. Does that make sense? <laughs> you, there's, I mean, there's, yeah. There, it gives us a lot more layers to work through. Uh, because when we talk about the church or we talk about following Christ, there are so many public voices and our culture actually advances those public voices that we've got to back work sometimes depending on what the person that we're talking to has been exposed to or what they have, they have viewed as authority in their own life for one reason or another. Does that make sense? Okay. Thank you all for your questions. Chad, great job. Thanks so much. That's fun. I'm really glad to hear from you. Uh, t- tonight's been encouraging to me. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm not going to get fired tomorrow, which is fantastic. So I'm so glad you guys are here. I hope you'll come back next week. Drew Griffin is going to be with us. Now, Drew is a Southerner who's lived in New York. So he has a lot to say about culture. He's also a very intelligent man who's going to be speaking from scriptures. And, uh, and then a couple, this is just advertisement now. Uh, and then after that, we're going to two weeks on identity and who we are as humans, as Christians. Um, we're going to a couple weeks on taxation. Now, that may sound boring, but it's not. And it's interesting, and it's something that we need to be informed about in order to have conversation with others. And then to lighten it up, I'm going to talk about humor for a couple weeks just to get over the tax boring stuff, right? Uh, so, Adam, I'm so sorry, buddy. I'm so sorry. I'm kidding. No, I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Dr. <laughs> that wasn't sarcasm, guys. Uh, Dr. George is going to teach us about the Reformation, and he's one of the premier scholars in the, the country about that and learning about church history is going to be super important because we're not Catholic and what does that mean? Uh, and then around the political time, we're going to talk about church and state before we talk about worship at the end of the year. So I know you may not be able to hear, be here for all of them, uh, but be here. Come and be a part of the conversation. I'm also really encouraged at the uh, array of ages here that our younger people can hear from our older people and we can learn from one another. We have a lot to offer one another and I hope we will hear that. This time we're going to close with a responsive reading prayer. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. I'm going to read uh, of the leader and then you will read uh, for the people. So let us pray together. Heavenly Father, in the midst of a broken world, may you give us restoration. May you give us transformation through your Son. May you give us eyes to see those around us in need of your truth. May you give us ears to hear the voices of those lost. May you give us focus to seek first the kingdom of God. May you give us wisdom to test everything and hold on to the good. May you give us boldness to enter culture and proclaim your truth. May you give us strength to sustain as exiles in a foreign land. May you give us hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a great night. Thanks for being here.